everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Serena Sakati. And I'm Sandy. And this podcast is dedicated to retelling the stories of some of the most inspirational individuals in the world. Their true stories are all about overcoming hardships, defying the odds, and ultimately about believing in the power that the story isn't over until the story is good, which happens to be one of our family mottos. And as always, we promise to do our very best to share their stories with the most accuracy and respect as possible when we're doing our research online for these, some of the sources inevitably do kind of contradict each other. So we try to pull out the most truthful information to present in the stories. So before we move into our second episode, which has been a long time coming, we have really been working ahead of time to batch some content so that moving forward, we will be able to get out a new episode to you guys each week. But how are you feeling this week, Gigi, on right before we start our second episode? I'm feeling good this week, less nervous than the first. So yeah, I feel I'm like the, the first one, I always look back at it. I'm like, oh my God, we should redo it because it sounds so um novice dumb (laughs) novice you know you just sound so youthful in it but I think that's kind of part of the journey and uh kind of a cool way to show maybe new people who are starting a podcast that the first episode doesn't always sound as good as the 50th true so we are going to jump into our second episode before we do our sources for this case are cnbc.com britannica.com leaders.com and wikipedia.com are you ready I'm ready. We've all been inspired and moved by movies like The Blind Side, where Michael Orr's story of coming from homelessness to signing with the NFL leaves us full of hope that even our biggest dreams are possible. But what about those of us who aren't 15, 16, or 17, and whose chances at using our athletic ability to get ahead have long since expired, if they ever even existed to begin with? Well, Sarah Blakely's story is one of a lesser-told grouping of individuals whose story of coming up didn't start on a football field or a basketball court. Her story is one that is equal parts inspirational and relatable. In 2012, Sarah Blakely, at the age of 41, would be named by Forbes as the world's youngest self-made billionaire. Wow. But before there was Sarah Blakely, youngest self-made billionaire, there was just Sarah Blakely. This is her story. Have you heard of Sarah Blakely? Do you know who she is? I have not. Okay, you'll know. I mean, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, this is how this came to be once we get into the story. I think you'll you'll understand, if not who she is, what she does. Is it like baking stuff? No. Like cupcakes? No? <laughs> no, that's Sarah Lee. That's okay. Sarah Lee. <laughs> that's Sarah Lee pot cheesecakes. <laughs> Those were equally delicious. <laughs> Sarah Blakely was born on February 27th in 1971 in Clearwater, Florida. She was born to her mother, Ellen, who was an artist, and to her trial attorney father, John. Her brother, Ford Blakely, was also an artist. Sarah attended Clearwater High School, where she was an active participant in the debate team. Sarah then went on to graduate from Florida State University with a communications degree. While at FSU, Sarah was also an active member of the Delta 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 sorority. You were never in a sorority, were you? No. I wasn't either. No. I have dated guys who are in fraternities. It's a different kind of vibe. But I will say the cool thing about it is it does really create like a sisterhood or a brotherhood. Everybody I know, all of my clients who were in a sorority or fraternity have very tight, close bonds with these people even 20 or 30 years later. So there must be something to it. For as long as Sarah could remember, she had dreamt of becoming a trial attorney just as her father had. Eventually, the time came for Sarah to take the LSATs, which is the test that you take to get into law school. 
She studied hard, but when her results came back, she had failed, tragically. Sarah was understandably devastated, but wasn't ready to give up so quickly and decided to sign herself up for a prep course. This time, Sarah studied harder than she ever had before, and when her test came, scores came in, Sarah had in fact scored one point worse than her first try, so she failed again, this time even worse. Oops. Defeated, Sarah decided in that moment that her dream of ever becoming a lawyer was over, which I find interesting that after just Twice two tries, she's like, I guess not meant to be. See you later. I mean, third time's the charm. You got to at least try three times. Well, as you'll see in this story, it's good that she did decide to do this. But at this point, when I was doing research, I was like, that's kind of weird. She goes all the way through the trouble and then just decides not to do it. So anyway, she decides she's not going to become a lawyer after all and call it divine intervention or just a whim. Sarah felt like the universe was now calling her in another direction. In my mind, the universe was now telling me to drive to Disney World and audition for the role of Goofy, said Sarah Blakely. That's right. Sarah Blakely's response to failing at becoming an attorney was to become a real-life Disney character. I'm sure her parents were excited about that decision. I actually didn't see anything in the research about her parents' responses, but you were a really cool parent. Like, in terms of being really supportive, you didn't really shove a lot of things down her throat. You kind of let us make our own minds up. And I can see even you being like, um, are you sure that's what you want to do? You do you, boo. <laughs> Go be goofy. <laughs> At an all-time low point in her life, she responded by heading towards what the world calls the happiest place on earth. Unfortunately, she quickly discovered that Disney only auditioned people for the character roles every so often. So in the meantime, Sarah got a job working at Epcot, which is one of the theme parks at Disney World. So she was essentially just like putting people on rides or serving ice cream, that kind of thing. So I do want to take a short second to acknowledge what Sarah did here. She goes from being a serious student at a Division I university, dreams of becoming an attorney. She fails the LSAT and does a complete 180 and heads off to Disney World to become goofy, essentially. And I personally never wanted to be a Disney character, but I can absolutely relate to Sarah in this place in her life. I'm sure you remember when I turned 30, I remember feeling like all the things I had planned in life were sort of falling apart. And I thought that the solution was to throw caution to the wind. And I went and planned that 18 month trip to travel in an RV around the world, creating content. Like I wanted this big adventure to find myself. And I do think that's kind of a common response especially in this day and age when people feel like nothing's going right, they sort of do the opposite and take that left, right? To just go do the exact opposite of what they were going to do. And while I never went on my 18-month trip, once the whole thing was planned out, the adventure of it sort of faded away. It turned out that the idea was actually more fun than doing it, and I think that's kind of what happens with Sarah. But that's also not the case for everyone. Maybe she would have gone to Epcot and become goofy and <laughs> fulfilled her life's dreams. But I can just say in relation to myself, I think sometimes when you're in that moment, you just want to do something that is like throwing caution to the wind. And when it comes down to it, you're sort of like, OK, maybe that's not my life. My life's goal is to be a goofy character. So not unlike my fa failure to launch trip, Sarah never ended up becoming the real-life Goofy at Disney, and once she finally got the opportunity to audition for the role, she was actually turned down because she looked too short in the costume. So instead, they offered her the role of a chipmunk, wow. which she ultimately turned down. Wow. 
So after turning down her chipmunk role, Sarah stayed with Epcot wearing her brown jumpsuit and escorting park goers onto the rides for three more months before she returned home to her mother. After losing at both her dream of law and her dream of Disney, Sarah floated through the workforce trying her hand at stand-up comedy, but truly without much direction. So she was really all over the place trying to find herself. She was reaching. For sure. So you're saying that she's reaching. Can you think of any times in your life where you felt maybe you were reaching? Like, what was your moment? Because mine was this 18-month trip that I never even ended up taking. What was your moment in life where you were just like, I'm reaching? Was it I moved across the country? I moved to another city? I quit my job to become something else? I mean, for me, I taught school for like 20 years and... I finally decided I didn't want to do that anymore. And so I went back to school to become a midwife. So that was kind of me reaching. Um, but now I'm actually moving out of midwifery. So now I don't know what's next. Um, Isn't that interesting that the for a lot of people, the reach after this, the steady thing, the thing that you always thought you would do, you do this big jump and you get to it. And then for a lot of us, it's what we always wanted to do. But I feel like a lot of times sort of like what you're saying, what happened to Sarah, what happened to me is once you get there, you're kind of like, maybe that's wasn't everything maybe the idea of it was cooler than actually doing it and I think too like at least for me because I'm obviously older than you are um only by like a couple of years yeah like back in back in my day um (laughs) when we were walking you know one way up the hill in the snow um when you got a a career you were expected to do that till you retired so you went to college you got your degree like for me it was in education and so the expectation was I was going to teach until I retired and it's a little different now where you feel a little more comfortable changing careers and there's a balance between that I think right because there should be the freedom I don't know that the ticket is yeah stay in the same job you hate for 40 years but you're also seeing the extreme opposite end now where kids that are younger than me are jumping ship every three to six months without even having any idea about what they want to do. So I think Sarah's a little bit more in the in-between here. I think she's, this is the early 2000s, or this is the early 90s. She's still just trying to figure out, I think, like who she is and what she wants to do. So, And and I think sometimes young people think that they're doing what their parents want them to do. So being a lawyer might have been something she felt like her parents wanted for her, and it wasn't really what she wanted, because if you really want something bad enough, you'll take that test however many times you need to pass. Exactly, and maybe that's, you start to see that relation between she decides to be goofy, then she does a little stand-up comedy. There's more of a direct relation there. Maybe she did have a really good sense of humor, and she was trying to lean into that, do something that she wanted. But either way, eventually Sarah landed a job at a local company called Donka, selling fax machines door-to-door. Think of it like a telemarketing job where they would basically hire anybody who is willing to show up, like anybody with a pulse. On Sarah's first day, they handed her a phone book with a list of four zip codes and told her to get busy. It was literally the epitome of cold calling sales. No list of previous customers, no, mar- no target market leads, just a phone book and four zip codes. Not afraid of a little hard work, Sarah decided that she was up for the task. She didn't really have any other options at this point. She's obviously not an introvert because there's literally no way I would ever be able to do that. See, and whenever I heard the like, here's the zip codes in in a phone book, I feel like this is very much how I started personal training. When you're at Gold's, they just kind of give you a list of new members. And I remember taking around this um, like handheld or like paper calendar and just asking random people in the gym, hey, would you want to have a free personal training session. I would be calling people and people would just hang up on you. So I feel like that's very much how I got 
the thicker skin of getting really into sales and some people have it and some people don't i definitely would never sign you up for sales no. you have many strengths no. but sales, sales especially cold calling is not one no, of them for you not happening so sarah would drive around from 8 a.m to 5 p.m cold calling knocking on doors and stopping anyone willing to hear her out within her four zip code region that she was assigned these are fax machines you said fax machines this is still like the 90s, the 90s. yeah they were like big Right, like facts, people were still very much using like them. Like your iPhone today. Like you Sure, need everybody machine. needed a fax machine. Yeah. Although most were not willing to hear her out, and many doors were slammed in her face, business cards torn in pieces, and she was even escorted out of a few buildings by police. Nice. Which would probably be the death of you. We would never see you again. You would just be like, nope, um, well, we're, we're done. Yeah, rumor has it I'd still be driving somewhere <laughs> by myself. Somewhere <laughs> to get as far away as possible. This is honestly the hardest type of sales in my personal opinion. Like I said, when I started my personal training business, even after the gym, I vividly remember walking door to door for hours, hanging up those door hangers. Remember, I had them printed oh out. God, I think I helped you hang up those door hangers. I feel like maybe you like drove around with me, at I, least. I actually did that. I hung up door hangers for my midwifery business. Oh, that's right. Because I had told that? you and I would go with you because. Yeah, and I did that once and it was so stressful. You never did it again. I, you had like this huge stack left yeah, that you never used. Like no. So even I, much more extroverted than you, I dreaded someone opening the door and trying to talk to me. I skipped over the houses with people outside. And unless you have done door-to-door sales, you truly cannot understand the terror that it brings you. It is just... I mean, another level of anxiety. So this is what essentially what she's doing. While Sarah didn't exactly enjoy the unappealing work of door-to-door sales, she eventually developed a thick skin in her work and being turned down barely phased her. She was even able to find a laugh or two at particular outrageous interactions with those that had turned her down, like people just like screaming in her face and having a really unreasonable response to her asking if they wanted to buy a fax machine. Sarah used much of her time during those seven years of sales thinking about what would be next for her. While she had risen to the top in her field, eventually being named as the national sales manager at the age of 25, she knew fax machines were not her future. However, Sarah was very aware that she possessed a great ability to work in the field of sales, which we've already seen. And so her dreams began to take root as she searched for an opportunity to utilize her gifts in a way that would bring her joy and fulfillment too. Sarah began to feel that all-too-familiar itch of entrepreneurship, which, again, I think both of us can relate to. Definitely. Instead of selling fax machines, she would love to sell something that she had created herself and that she actually cared about. One day, while still employed with Donka, Sarah was frustrated with the ugly appearance of the seam of her pantyhose sticking out of the toe of her open-toed shoes. For her national sales manager role, Sarah was required to wear the pantyhose, and while she hated the look on her feet, she actually appreciated the way they made her waist and legs feel firmer. Is this like the Lululemon lady? Nope, but you're getting closer. It's definitely not cheesecake. Dan skin? (laughs) Closer. One day, as Sarah was scheduled to attend an event, she experimented by cutting off the feet of her pantyhose while wearing them under a new pair of slacks. While she had achieved the desired look, benefiting from the tight legs and waistband without the ugly seam poking through the toe of her shoe, she was annoyed that the bottom of the pantyhose rolled up her legs all evening. Suddenly, Sarah had an idea. What if she could design a pair of footless pantyhose that sat right where it was meant to while still achieving the desired look of a firmer waist and legs? Shapewear. Is that who it is? It's It's not shapewear, but it is a 
form of shapewear. You're almost there. Okay. So in 1998, at the age of 27 and still employed with Donka, Sarah relocated to Atlanta, Georgia. Here in Atlanta, Sarah would spend the next two years and all $5,000 of her savings researching and developing her idea for flattering women's hosiery. In the late 90s, $5,000 would be equivalent to $8,300 in 2021. So that's just sort of like the, um, the change in money. After two years of researching, Sarah drove to North Carolina, which was the location of most of America's hosiery mills. She planned and prepared to present all her well-thought-out ideas. But Sarah was turned away by every single mill and representative. Most of these companies were used to dealing with established brands and companies and did not see the value of her idea. Furthermore, Sarah was quickly discovering that the hosiery manufacturing industry was overseen solely by men who were obviously not using the products that they were producing. Classic. It was, so yeah, it was no wonder they couldn't see the value in what Sarah was trying to introduce. They didn't even wear pantyhose. Well, Which I think <laughs> maybe some of them wore pantyhose. I mean, if you are wearing pantyhose, you, you go you. get it. Go get that, those pantyhose. Two weeks after arriving home from her North Carolina trip, feeling defeated yet again, 30-year-old Sarah received a call from a mill operator based in Asheboro, North Carolina. After running Sarah's idea by his three daughters, who went wild over Sarah's invention, he was offering to support Sarah's concept. Just a year later, the initial product prototype that Sarah jumped up was completed and produced. Sarah got to work writing her own patent application for the new footless prototype that she had playfully named Spanx. Ah, that's what I was trying to think uh -huh. of. Spanx. Spanx. Sarah used her credit card to purchase the Spanx trademark on the United States Patent and Trademark Office website for $150. She then consulted a patent attorney to finalize her application prior to her submission to the trademark office and he agreed to assist her for a sum of $750. Following the submission of the online application, she then began work on the packaging of her products. Rather than investing in advertising, Sarah traveled across the United States meeting and modeling for the boards of stores herself. She landed these meetings in the ultimate cold calling fashion and was eventually able to secure meetings with the stores such as Neiman Marcus. Elated to land a meeting with Neiman's, Sarah arrived to later what she changed into the product in the ladies' restroom in the presence of the Neiman Marcus buyer to prove the benefits of her innovation. Nice. Sarah's product was sold in seven different Neiman Marcus stores as a result of this meeting. I just think this is really cool because she stays so true to her personality where she's literally just getting online, calling. Like, I don't, you can't even really get online at this time. She's in a phone book just like hunting down like people at Neiman Marcus right. saying, Hey, can I come try these on for you? And it works. It's just, this is, I was just talking to Jacob about this, that with all the innovation and marketing and sales and all this stuff, there's just something that stays true to like putting your feet to the pavement and hunting down the right person. It's really a matter of just, it's a numbers game, matter of opportunity. After her big win with Neiman Marcus, Sarah and Sphinx were off to the races. Soon, Bloomingdale, Sachs, and Bergdorf Goodman all followed. Sarah was soon personally contacting friends and acquaintances, including those from her past, and asking them to seek out her products at select department stores in exchange for a check that she would send them by mail as a token of appreciation. So she's really just trying to get as creative as she can to get people to buy this product. It was around this time that Sarah sent a basket of products to Oprah Winfrey's television program, with a gift card that explained what she was attempting to develop. In late 2000, thanks to Sarah's old gift basket, 
Oprah Winfrey featured Spanx on her popular nationally syndicated television talk show. Thereafter, sales skyrocketed, and the charismatic Sarah Blakely rapidly built an empire without any paid advertising or outside investment. Oh, good for her. Which I think is crazy impressive. Like a multi-million dollar company with literally no investors, and she didn't go into debt or do any paid advertising on it. Spanx achieved $4 million in sales in its first year and $10 million in sales in its second year. Then, in 2001, Sarah signed a contract with QVC, which was the home shopping channel at the time. Still is. Is it still? Yeah. That's still, is it the one that does like the late night infomercials? I think so, yeah. That's cool. I mean, I don't know, but yes, it's still You're exists. like, I am actually recording it at home, so we need right. to wrap this up. <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta go do some Just online shopping. ordered some new stuff yesterday. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Sarah's salesmanship was complemented by her unabashed showmanship. Sarah Blakely served as her own model both on television and at in-store public appearances across the U.S. In 2004 and 2005, Sarah appeared on the show Rebel Billionaire, where she finished second but impressed so much that the host gave her $750,000. With this money, Sarah established the Sarah Blakely Foundation, which is a philanthropic organization which provides scholarships and grants to aspiring female entrepreneurs awesome which i think is a great grant yeah more and more media appearances followed which increased sales and by the end of 2010 annual sales of Spanx had reached hundreds of millions of dollars in early 2012 the company of which sarah blakely was still the sole owner was valued at one billion dollars Goodness. Landing Sarah Blakely on the cover of Forbes magazine as the youngest self-made female billionaire in the world. In October 2013, Sarah explained that her ambition is to design the world's most comfortable high-heeled shoe prior to her retirement. She was then listed as the 93rd most powerful woman in the world by Forbes. In 2015, Sarah and her husband, Jesse Itzler, were part of a group led by Tony Ressler that purchased the Atlanta Hawks for $850 million. Sarah and Jesse have four children together. She's a boss lady and a mom, which we love to see it. Yeah. In October 2021, the Blackstone Group acquired a majority stake of Spanx Incorporated. The company was valued at the time at $1.2 billion. Sarah Blakely was to retain the position as executive chairwoman, and Forbes magazine estimated her net worth after the deal at $1.3 billion. To celebrate the transaction, Sarah Blakely gave each of her 750 employees $10,000 in cash and let them purchase two first-class plane tickets to any destination they desired to travel to. Oh, that's fun. Which I think is a really great work perk. It just probably shows that she had a really great workplace culture which is really important to the success of a business. Right. Sarah Blakely credits much of her successes to her father, who always encouraged his kids not to be afraid to fail. She remembers her father saying that he knew many people who became paralyzed by the fear of failure, and he didn't want that for her. Behind every incident of failure is an opportunity or a lesson, or as Sarah puts it, a chance to build your character. Spanx wouldn't have existed if she didn't fail the LSAT. Everybody has a multi-million dollar idea inside of them, says Sarah, She quotes Edison saying, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. The same holds true for innovation, invention, and entrepreneurship. And that's the story of Sarah Blakely, who became the world's youngest self-made female billionaire in just 14 short and impressive years. I have some thoughts. Um, One is all of the stuff that she did prior to that was not for nothing. So... 
her her knowledge as a lawyer helped her selling fax machines obviously helped her and so what i always preach too it's like everything that you do is for a purpose it's not a waste it's not for nothing so even though she didn't become a lawyer or she didn't continue to sell fax machines um doesn't mean that that didn't benefit her as she was trying to grow this business and the other thing i just want to add is she found a need and she filled the need so if you know like how awesome is that no you're not rambling because actually i didn't include it in here i should have now that you're saying literally things there's a list of seven things that sarah blakely recommends in her book to aspiring entrepreneurs and on that list is to not be afraid to fail and to use your previous experiences towards the thing that you're working towards next and one of the most important at least to me that stood out is that is to look for a problem in your industry and to provide a solution and that's essentially she, what she did there's a couple of other things on the list but you're you're spot on with that she writes about that in, in the book that she um, has published recently and I couldn't agree more as an entrepreneur. I obviously don't am not the owner of a $1.3 billion company, but I think most of us can measure success on a much more, um, you know, realistic scale. You know, it's great to dream to be a billionaire, but what most of us want to do as entrepreneurs is keep the lights on and have enough money to live the lifestyle that we, you know, desire and dream of. And all of those things ring true, whether you're trying to run a $100,000 business or a $1.3 billion business. So I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's, I mean, I remember when I was leaving teaching, I had some really negative people who even said to me, you're wasting your degree. I don't know why you're going to quit. But just having that teaching degree was extremely helpful when I went on to become a midwife because I used everything that I had to help with my patients and, you know, education for them. So it's never for nothing. Um, and also just plugging Gary V was listening to him uh, earlier this morning and he was talking about failure and how important it is to fail because that's where you learn and you know become better because of it yeah I agree so I'll include a link in our um, podcast resources and um, it's on leaders.com and these are the seven things that Sarah Blakely recommends when you are starting your business it one is to stay motivated even in the face of loss two is to embrace failure Three is to solve a real life problem. Four, learn how to work on a shoestring budget, which I think it's notable to remember in her story. She took no investors. She didn't have any major debt. She just used the money that she was able to save to start this. And then she just put her feet to the pavement. Five is to keep going no matter what, which is what you mentioned, is that consistency and just continuing is often the difference between the people who fail and succeed. Six is to innovate the industry. So if you're not necessarily solving a problem, what can you do to improve upon what's, what's already exists there? And seven is to visualize success, which I should have included this in here to begin with. You used to do that to us all the time to tell us, you know, when we were playing sports or we were trying to go get that big hit or taking a test or landing a job is to visualize yourself in that position, succeeding at what it is you're trying to do. And research, research has shown that that is a very, very valuable tool and implementing, you know, success for the things that you're trying to accomplish. So, yeah, the, there's a book. I don't know if it still exists. I had to read it in college. It's called The Inner Game of Tennis. If you haven't read it and it's still in public. Yeah, we'll, put, we'll look it up. It. If it is, we'll put it on the, the case resources. Because I remember you, you know, we grew up in a household where you were taught, you, you yeah. taught us a lot of those things, even if they weren't all intentional. I feel right. like all those things were values we grew up with. So anyway, you guys, that is the story of Sarah Blakely. She's got a really impressive story. She became a billionaire, self-made female billionaire at the age of just 41. So if you're in your 20s, 30s, 50s, 
just know it's not too late. You can be on your second, third, fourth, fifth try. It doesn't really matter. It's, you know, where there's life, there's hope. So whatever you're dreaming of, it's certainly possible. And in the meantime, we love you guys. Thanks for listening. Bye.